We're back in action. Hello, everyone. It's only been about three months, um, but, you know, what can you do? We live busy lives, especially me lately. My life is really riveting. Yes. There's been um, a lot of changes going on. So many of them. But we're back. We definitely had the intention to record this last night on Friday the 13th to make it spookier. But here we are um, in true procrastinator fashion. On Saturday the 14th with no significant meaning. <laughs> nope. But whatever. We are in Krista's bed recording um, because our podcast setup has changed a bit. But, you know, we make do. Yeah. Um, and today we are going to be talking about a case that we've been interested in for a few months now and have been talking about. Mainly because my family has a weird little connection to it, and that is the case of Jeff McDonald and the murders of his family in the early 1970s. So it's definitely an interesting one. Something that is extra cool in this episode is you'll hear both my aunt and my dad's little testimonies because they worked with this guy when he was a surgeon at a hospital in Long Beach in the 70s. So we will get into that, but we can dive right in to Jeff's early life when he met his wife, Colette. And Jeff was your typical, like, Princeton guy. He went to Princeton, and then he went to medical school. So he was, like, living large. He was going to be a successful guy. And he and Colette actually met in eighth grade. And you see pictures of her, and she definitely looks shy. And apparently she was really shy. Um, And Jeff kind of thought of himself as her protector. And then in 1963, they found out Colette was pregnant. So um, they decided to get married after she got pregnant. And they joined, or he joined the U.S. Army as a group surgeon, and they moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So Jeff and Colette are living this like fairy tale little army base life. They lived in a house on the military base. Jeff had earned the rank of captain. He was also going to study advanced medical training at Yale. So first Princeton, then Yale. Like, dang. You go. Yeah. Um. And Colette was so happy. She described their life as never being so normal and happy. And at that point in 1970, they had two daughters already. And she was pregnant with um, their third, and it was going to be a boy. So exciting times. Yeah, they literally just are like the all-American couple. Yeah. Like two girls, a boy on the way. Love and life. He's a surgeon in the army. Like, yeah. Yeah. So... Then comes along the night of February 16th in the early mornings of February 17th. Um, Apparently that night, Jeff went to feed the pony he got his daughters for Christmas. (laughs) So apparently, you know, they were doing well. He he liked to make his daughters happy. Got him a pony. Um, And they had a nice evening of watching TV together and the girls went to bed. Um, Colette came home around 940, which I was reading about this and listening to podcasts and stuff, and I never understood, like, where did she come home from? Like, what was she out doing? I don't remember it ever specifying, like, what she was doing. Yeah. Um, 
I just said that she was out. Yeah, I don't really know. It's weird. But it's kind of late to, like, come home. <laughs> like, when you're pregnant. Right? I'm usually in bed by nine, so. I know. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, Jeff claimed they went to bed soon after that. Um, and then he said at around 3.42 a.m., um, or actually he didn't say this, but at 3.42 a.m., dispatchers at Fort Bragg got his call, like an emergency phone call, and he, like, faintly spoke into the receiver, help, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing, hurry, and the operator just heard the sound of him, like, hanging up or, like, the phone dropping on the floor. Um, so military police were there within 10 minutes. The front door was closed and locked, um, and the house was super dark, but they went in through the unlocked back door. And that's where they found Colette in the master bedroom, clubbed to death, and stabbed 21 times with an ice pick, and 16 times around the neck and chest with a knife. Like, little bit of overkill, in my opinion. It's a lot of overkill. Like, yeah. I think one of those would have done the job. Yeah. So, also, her bloody and torn pajama top was on top of her with a little knife next to her. And then Jeff McDonald was found next to her, lying face down. He was alive but had, like, some small wounds. Um, And he had his head on Colette's chest and one arm around her neck. And as um, the military police approached him, he was whispering, like, check my kids. I heard my kids crying. Um, Also, pig was written on their headboard in Colette's blood, which is oddly familiar to the Manson murders. Yeah, and it's kind of around the same times. As that was happening, too. That whole, like, craze. Um, And then poor five-year-old Kimberly was found stabbed around eight to ten times and bludgeoned to death. And two-year-old Kristen was stabbed 33 times with a knife and 15 times with an ice pick. I just, like, don't understand that part of it. I don't either. Like, it seems like a fit of rage, I know. You know, like, that's just, it's just very strange because they're children. Like, you know, like... Like, what would they have done to deserve that? Nothing. Yeah. So, moving on to Jeff's, like, point of view and his, like, side of the story, I guess Mm -hmm. you would say. So, Jeff said that he fell asleep on the couch around 2 a.m. and woke up to Colette screaming, like, help, why are they doing this to me? So he got up and he was attacked by three male intruders. He said one was black and then two were white. And he also said that he saw a white female with a blonde wig wearing big boots and a floppy hat holding a candle (laughs) and chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Like, okay. Which is... Sure. Yeah. Sure, Jan. Very, Very strange, like... Oh, I don't know why this popped into my head when I, like, was reading this the first time, but how would he have known it was a wig? That's a good question. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I'm, like, really reading into that too much, but, like, maybe it was a shitty wig and, like, that's how he knew. But, yeah, I always thought that was odd. Um, But, anyways, moving on. So, So Jeff McDonald said the three attacked him with a club and an ice pick. And they used his pajama top and, like, pulled it over his head and arms to, like, bind him together. Um, And eventually he was knocked unconscious. And that when he woke up, he attempted to resuscitate, like, each of his daughters before discovering his wife. And then he draped his pajama top 
over her body and ran to the phone for help. Here's what I don't understand. He said that he attempted resuscitation on his daughters, but then the police came and he was like, oh, I think I heard my kids crying. Yeah, that's... So you can't you can't res- try to resuscitate someone and then claim that you don't know, like, what they were crying about. Yeah, super, super weird. And then just calling out, like, his injuries, which you kind of spoke to earlier. So he had much less severe injuries than the rest of his family. Obviously, they were, like, brutally bludgeoned, um, stabbed multiple times with knives, ice picks. And when it came to to Jeff, he had small cuts, bruises, scratches. He also received a single stab wound between two ribs on his right torso and then five-eighths of an inch in depth, which caused his lung to partially collapse. Like, which is very indicative of, like, something... very specific. Something a surgeon would maybe know if they were trying to, like, injure themselves, but but not not fatally injure themselves, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, it's it's all a little sketchy. Definitely. Moving on, so shortly after daylight on... February 17th, investigators recovered the murder murder weapons outside the back door of the house. So there was a kitchen knife, an ice pick, and a 31-inch long piece of lumber. That were, like, used to bludgeon them. Yes. And all of them had been wiped clean, no fingerprints, and McDonald later claimed he had never seen these items before. But they were determined to have come from their house. So, like... Yes. The, also, the thing, one of the biggest things for me that doesn't make sense is, I'm sorry, but usually when murderers come to your house, they're going to bring a murder weapon with them. Yeah, They're not just going to, like, hope, leave it to chance that you have, like, something that they can use at the scene. Like That's true. What murderer comes to your home without something to murder you with? Yeah, exactly. You know, like... All the murderers that come to my house always, like, well, bring something. That's good. I mean, at least they're prepared <laughs> murderers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um. So... Investigators also realized, like, the living room where Jeff said he and the assailants were struggling barely showed any signs of a struggle. I think one of them said it looked like the coffee table had been knocked on its side and basically planted there um, to, like, indicate there was a struggle, but it really didn't look like there was. Yeah, and there was just, like, a plant on the floor, and I I was looking at how they recreated this, and I'm like... I can literally knock those things over doing, like, a workout class in my living room. Yeah. Like, if you if someone's trying to kill you, like, three people, pretty sure the living room would look a little different. Yeah, it's very, very suspicious, to say the least. Yeah. And also, there were no fibers from his pajama top were found in the living room where he said the entire struggle <laughs> occurred. They were only found in the bedroom. Just super weird. Super weird, inconsistent, doesn't really make sense. Um, one thing to call out, though, was that the crime scene was not properly secured and was compromised. So, an estimated 26 people, um, they were mainly army personnel, were in and out of the scene, and it was later revealed that evidence was disturbed and, like, destroyed by contamination. Mm. So, Dr. McDonald, his wallet was stolen. There was 40 sets of fingerprints that were destroyed. (laughs) 40 sets of fingerprints that were destroyed. And all the bloody prints were, like, lost, too. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Um... So, no blood or fingerprints were found on either telephone McDonald claimed he had used, which is very strange if he had resuscitated his bloody children. Yeah, exactly. No blood. 
Uh, also, the bloodstained tip of a surgical glove was found beneath the headboard where the blood inscription was written. So. And McDonald had, like, lots of those gloves. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a, a doctor. doctor. He would. And who else? Why else would they have used a glove? Yeah. If they were just random murderers. No one's going to exactly. be like, oh, let me pull out my surgical glove. I know. But Especially I'd... these, like, weird people that he claims like, did it. hippie kids, yeah. basically, is what he's insinuating. Yeah. So, also another thing. It had rained all night. This is weird. Yeah. It had rained all night. Um, McDonald had specifically claimed that the female intruder boots were all wet, um, with rainwater and there was water literally dripping off of them, but there, there was no like muddied footprints in the house anywhere. And so if you would expect that if these intruders were walking inside from muddy outside. You would see that yeah. inside the house. And there was no, like, indication that anyone else had really been like, inside the house. Like, through the house with wet at shoes. All. Yeah. So, another thing, just to keep in mind as we move through this story, like, there's a lot of inconsistencies that just don't make sense. Yeah. So, diving deeper into the forensics of this stuff, <laughs> because this is the part that really convinces me one way, but then there's other stuff that convinces me the other. But anyways, Kimberly's blood was found on that pajama top, even though Jeff said that he wasn't wearing it when he tried to resuscitate her. So how would her blood get on there? Because he killed her. And the whole blood thing is really, it's really telling because what's insane is that all four members of the family had different blood types. So... That is crazy, first of all. Yeah, and back in that time, they didn't have, like, super advanced DNA testing. So yeah. the blood type thing was a great way for them to be able to track. They could be like, this person's blood is here. This person's blood is here. Right. So, I guess Colette's blood was found in Kristen's room, even though all three victims were in separate rooms, which suggests that they were attacked separately. And it seems like Kimberly's attack began in the master bedroom, According to, like, the blood, and investigators wondered why strangers would carry her back to her bed to finish the murder. Like, if they truly didn't care about this little girl, they would have just finished her off in the bedroom. Yeah, they're not going to care to move her back to her own room. Yeah. So, this stuff kind of has investigators thinking, like, maybe he did it, you know? And what they did was essentially reconstruct what they thought might have actually happened if Jeff was the person to kill his family. So what they think is that an argument or a fight between Jeff and Clep started in the master bedroom. Maybe over the issue, I guess Kristen would wet the bed and Kristen would sleep in bed in their bed sometimes. So they think maybe they were fighting about that or something. Or it could be that Jeff was cheating on Colette. It's honestly a mystery. But it's speculated that the fight turned physical and Colette hit him on the head with a hairbrush. So he retaliated and was angry and was hitting her first with his fist and then beating her with a piece of lumber. And then this is why they think Kimberly walked in because her blood and like gross but brain serum was found in the doorway So maybe she walked in after hearing the commotion and maybe she was hit on the head kind of just to kind of like 
get her out of there. Yeah, or, like, as an accident. And then Jeff thought Colette was dead, so he carried Kimberly back to her bedroom and realized, okay, I need to kill Kimberly now. So then he stabbed her and then went into Kristen's room to get rid of the last witness, you know? But before he could do that, Colette, her blood was found on Kristen's bed covers on one wall of her room, too. So investigators think, okay, maybe she regained consciousness, stumbled into her younger daughter's room, threw her body over her to protect her. And then I guess after killing both of them, McDonald wrapped Colette's body in a sheet, carried her back to the master bedroom, which left the footprint in blood. So that's kind of how they reconstructed it based on the blood types, which honestly makes sense to me. Yeah, I feel like that makes a lot more sense than Jeff's account of, of things. Like, yeah. What, what they're proposing happened, like, seems like it genuinely could have happened. Yeah, and like, I don't know... I guess they then theorized that Jeff attempted to cover up the murders using, like, a theory based on the Manson family murders because there was a March 1970 issue of Esquire in the living room. Like, someone had just been reading it, right? And it was all about the Manson family murders. And so they think that's where he got the inspiration to write, like, Pig on the headboard and claim that it was, like, hippies. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And... Yeah, I mean, you would think he would have removed the Esquire magazine as he was staging his scene. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I guess then that's when he laid his pajama top over Colette's dead body and repeatedly stabbed her with an ice pick, which, again, overkill, and then discarded the weapons close to the back door after wiping them clean. But they think in an attempt to get himself to look, like, beaten up and wounded, too... He took a scalpel blade from his supply closet, went into the bathroom, and stabbed himself right in that very specific spot, and then disposed of those surgical gloves. And that's when he called the police. So, I mean, that all makes sense to me, especially with the blood evidence. Yeah, no, it definitely lines up more than his theory. Like, the big thing for me is, like, the missing footprints that should have been there. Yeah. Like, the muddy, you know? And if he was that disoriented... When he called, like, the police, like, he would have left everything the same. Like, there would have been footprints. There would have been stuff in disarray. Right. Yeah. It just doesn't... His account of things just don't really add up to me. And the police's theory on this, like, actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And then, really quickly, though, like, that evidence makes sense, right? But then there's two things that... I listen to, like, on another podcast that make me think opposite. Yes, yes. That are just too weird. Like, there, there was another guy, like, on the army base. He wasn't, like, friends with Jeff or anything. But he, uh, like, on the witness stand, testified that he saw the exact type of people that Jeff was describing. Right. And that is so weird to me. Well, there were multiple accounts. Yeah, there were many people that said they saw them. And in my head, I'm like... Okay, maybe those people were there, like, walking around. Maybe Jeff saw them, too, and decided to use that and say, I saw these weird people, so I'm going to say that these weird people killed them because other people may have seen them, too. Yeah, that's the only thing that, that makes sense to me. If I think also one of them was a cop. Really? Yeah, one there was a cop who also said he saw the girl that night yeah, exactly. in the rain. And so, 
It's so weird. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. That That is a huge question mark for me, though. And later they found that woman, and she basically was like, I really, truly believe I was there, but I don't remember anything. Like, yeah, I was she would too have, high on drugs. She would have, like, weird kind of flashbacks, sort of. Yeah. And ended up saying, yeah, essentially, like, I think I was there. Yeah. So that's always, I don't know, that one's, like, a big question mark for me, because... If that's true, like, then is what he's saying true? That's and the just thing. unlikely, but true? I know. Because that that and the motive stick with me. I don't know what the motive was. Yeah. No one could ever figure out why you would do that. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But we'll get into his behavior kind of afterwards. Yeah. Because then you definitely start to question things. Yes, definitely. And just buckle up, y'all, because there's a lot of dates <laughs> and a lot of details. And Krista's going to do a great job <laughs> recapping them all. We'll try. <laughs> um. So after the Army investigators found the evidence um, that did not support McDonald's story... Um, they compiled their evidence, which included asking McDonald to take a polygraph, which initially he agreed to take, um, but then changed his mind and refused. On On May 1st, the Army formally charged him with the murder of his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and the polygraph thing, I just feel like it trips people up a lot of the time, but, like, polygraphs are super unreliable. Like, they're not... You can't use them in court, but, like, a you lot can't? of... No. I thought you could. No, they're not admissible in court. This is why you're my (laughs) co-host. Which is, like, why they're super unreliable. So, but what it is used for is a lot of police agencies or in this uh, instance, like, the army, if you refuse to take it, in their eyes, that's an indication that you're being And then they look into it more. But, like, that's why, like... In all honesty, like, I would probably never agree to take a polygraph just because, like, they are so unreliable. And if you're nervous, it can skew your results. Exactly. It's just a mess. So I wouldn't focus too much on that portion. Um, But, yes, they did formally charge him for the murder murder of his family. Um, So October 13th, 1970, it was determined that there was insufficient evidence to prove his guilt in the Army hearing. So he was basically... Not guilty. Which is weird because I feel like there was, like, a lot of evidence. There was, but according... I feel like his army buddies were, like... Well, that is a good point. So, you bringing that up, he was very buddy-buddy yeah. with, like, a lot of people in the army. Not to mention Colette's family was behind him. twenty yeah. Like, totally behind him and was, like, he could never do this to yeah, them. Yeah, his... Her family was initially, like, no way he would never do this. Like, mm-hmm. you have to think about it. Like, this is... He brutally is being alleged. He allegedly brutally murdered his family. And, like, that's just never a side that they had seen. So yeah. they were like, there's no way. Um. So, yeah, he was found not guilty. Um. In 1971, July 1971, uh, McDonald moved to Long Beach, California. So our backyard almost, Yeah, essentially. we'll get into that, too. <laughs> and he eventually began working in the emergency room at St. Mary's Hospital in November 1971. Um, he began doing interviews a lot, too, um, and appearing on television talks, talk shows. And some of weird. his statements about, like, the elements of the crime and his injuries did not match 
um, what his father-in-law, Fred, had remembered hearing in the Article 32 hearing, which yeah, is Freddie, the army, like, uh, proceedings that they did trial. Freddie Kassab, like, was first fighting for his son-in-law and then kind of flip-flopped. Yeah, so once he started seeing these interviews and hearing what Jeff had started saying in these interviews, he was like, whoa, 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 this is not what you said happened. All of a sudden, his story chains and Fred starts questioning, like, okay, maybe he did do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Mr. Kassab requested and reviewed the Article 32 military transcript of the hearing. And after he reviewed this, mind you, this is like a 2,000-page transcript, um, he compiled numerous inconsistencies in the statements. So, there was a bunch of key things that he deemed like we're not adding up from yeah. his initial statements and then now um years later it was just too different for him to not question it mm-hmm. um and eventually he concluded that mcdonald had killed his family yeah so i mean you kind of touched on this like the family was 100 percent behind him and then him opening his big fat mouth is really kind of what turned the family against him so on April 30th, 1974, Mr. Kassab, which mind you is Colette's father, filed a complaint with the U.S. District Court requesting a grand jury. Um, a grand jury actually indicted McDonald and he was arrested in California on January 24th, 1975. Um, I'm laughing at how many dates there are. Yeah, there's a lot of dates here. And I mean, they're not super, con- it like necessary to know the dates but it's just trying to give you like a timeline of yeah of what's going on so january 31st 1975 so this is about six days later after he was indicted he was let go on a hundred thousand dollar bail pending um disposition of the charges so basically what that means is he was fighting back and didn't want the trial to go forward um which we learn later, so July 29th, 1975, a judge denied his double jeopardy and speedy trial arguments and allowed the trial date to begin August 18th, 1975. So basically what happened here is Jeff was trying to claim, because he went through the Article 32 hearing already, mm-hmm. um, that this would technically be a double jeopardy yeah. hearing. But it was not because they're two different courts. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to be charged again. And like we said, uh, the trial began July 16th, uh, 1979. It began in Raleigh, North Carolina. So this is a lot of time between everything that happened. So he was just like chilling in between. Yeah, I mean, like he was living moved. his life. I think he moved to New York for a while. He moved to California. Now he finally has to go back to North Carolina and deal yeah, with this trial. I remember, like in that podcast we both listened to, um, it's called Morally Indefensible. Um, I remember, like he had been living that California lifestyle, like surfing, running on the beach. He yeah, had a condo house, right on the beach. House on the beach, yeah. balling out. And then, like, all of a sudden, he had to go back for this trial in North Carolina, and it was, like, disrupting his life, and it's like, yeah. dude. So the trial lasted just over a month. Um, So August 29th, 1979. 
McDonald was convicted of one count of first-degree murder in the death of Kristen, and then two counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly. Which, I don't really understand that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure why they would have done different ones. Yeah. Um, it probably has more to do with their theory of how the events happened. Yeah. The two might have been planned and the other one just happened because she walked in. Yeah, true. Um, so that's kind of where I think that comes from. Um, yeah, it's very, it is kind of strange that they separated them. Mm-hmm. Um, on July 29th, 1980, so this is a year, just under a year later, a panel of the fourth court of appeals uh reversed mcdonald's conviction so basically saying in a two-to-one split on the grounds that the nine-year delay in bringing him to trial violated his sixth amendment rights to a speedy trial which in all honesty it did yeah like it's like this is nine years nine years yeah so like i understand this decision um it it, yeah for the family i'm sure it was gut-wrenching because He's now being let out of jail. So he was freed on bond, another $100,000 bail. Um, And he basically went back to normal life. He returned to work at St. Mary's Medical Center in Long Beach. Which I can dive into, like, kind of how he was as a physician. Yes. And then we can hop back to what happened. But he, he went back to work in Long Beach, like California, where he had his condo on the beach. And he went to work at um, St. Mary's Medical Center. And funny enough, this is where my aunt and dad were working at the time. Like, they were younger, like, starting their careers, and um, they actually worked alongside him and kind of got a taste of his, you know, persona. But apparently during this time, like, he was regarded as, like, a really brilliant physician and surgeon, and even the police department in Long Beach, like loved him and a lot of people had personal stories of being treated by him or like someone whose life he had saved like he was an honorary member of the police officers association so you know buddy buddy with all the police officers uh he was on the board of directors for the long beach chapter of the american heart association and the staff in his er were so devoted to him like when his trial date was set in 1979 There were all these, like, fundraisers for him to help him. I guess people mortgaged their homes to help him. And because they believed that he was such a good guy. Like, he gave off this persona that he just, like, wanted to save people's lives. And, you know. Which is crazy. Like, he's all of these great, amazing things. But then also accused of being this literal monster. Exactly. So now we'll dive into my dad's testimony of his time working with Jeff McDonald. Hello, my name is Earl Rosrin. I worked at Long Beach St. Mary's Hospital in the period of 1974 to 1976 while I was in high school as a logistics courier. That role was basically moving supplies throughout the hospital, and many times that meant bringing things to the emergency room. Um, Dr. Jeff McDonald worked there uh, and had been working there since 1971. People there knew he had been charged with murder, but that all charges had been dismissed. Still, many people wondered. Um, He was, however, well-liked at the hospital, and he was an exceptional emergency room physician. Um, Those are the type of roles working in the emergency room where you have to make very quick decisions 
about diagnosis and treatment, and he was very, very good at that. But he also had absolutely no tolerance for people who weren't, shall we say, on their game at work. Uh, he was absolutely a perfectionist. He would get angry quickly, and people sometimes wondered if that, uh, that sort of quick-to-anger personality um, could have led to what occurred at Fort Bragg. Still, uh, he did very well at St. Mary's. People did like him. He was quite a ladies' man there. And um, unfortunately, I stopped working at St. Mary's before his trial in 1979, so that was sort of the end of the interaction with him. But again, I worked with him during the period of 1974 to 1976. This is what my aunt said. She said, my personal experience is about his demeanor, which I witnessed in the ER. During a trauma, like when he was doing surgery, he would be super cool, efficient, calm, and decisive, and worked with the team under really urgent conditions. She said, I remember the first time I saw him with a patient in the ER who was badly injured. He was calm and focused and the patient survived. But later that same day, she was walking to the break room in the ER and she started to walk in and noticed that Jeff was holding an empty coffee pot and he looked around and yelled at literally no one in particular that the coffee pot was empty and threw it into the sink. And I think it actually like broke the coffee pot and the noise like made people come in the room. By this time he was like red in the face and livid that there was no coffee so my aunt just kind of like backed out and was thinking like, how is he so calm during surgeries when things are tense and chaotic, but something like a small inconvenience triggers that kind of like rage inside. Yeah, that's very, it, it kind of gives you a glimpse into the side of, okay, is this maybe what happened then? Yeah. So she just said like, it kind of stuck with her, like that kind of anger that was just below the surface. And... Although she said some people she worked with did not believe he was innocent. Like, even though some, like, mortgaged their homes to help him, some were like, yeah, no way. Um, like I said, he lived in that oceanfront condo. He had a yacht and had, like, a super active social life, dated a ton of beautiful women, was outgoing, involved in the community. Um, but a lot of people would kind of whisper about him and be like, he does not act like a grieving widower who lost his family. Yeah, like, that just doesn't add up. Like, if my husband passed away, I would not be, like, out yachting it up. I know. know? So, So, like, he lived that California lifestyle. (laughs) People, like, loved him in Long Beach. But then, all of a sudden, he has to go back to trial. Yeah, so on May 26, 1981, the United States Supreme Court accepted the case for consideration. And so, December 7th, 1981... They ended up hearing, like, the oral arguments for the case, basically determining whether he should get a new trial or, like, what what should go on from here. Mm-hmm. So, March 31st, 1982, they ruled 6-3 to three that McDonald's rights to a speedy trial had not been violated. So, he was rearrested and returned to federal prison. And his original sentence of three consecutive life terms was reinstated. Um, with time already served since he was, yeah, yeah, convicted in 1979. So, so he's just been there ever since. Yeah. And I mean, I don't really know what to think about it. If you have extra time, I would suggest you listen to the Morally Indefensible podcast because it does go into a lot of detail, um, surrounding the situation with the 
assailants, alleged assailants that yeah. were there. They really go into a great extensive detail. There's recordings and like that's part of it that really sticks with me. Mm-hmm. If there's eyewitness accounts, I think she even came forward and said she was there. Like Yeah, but then they kind of proved her wrong. They proved that she's a liar and a drug, yeah. drug addict, basically. So it's like, was she there? Was she not? And then there's accounts of this other guy, like, later in the years, this random guy, he would, like, get drunk, and these people were talking to him, and he, like, confessed and was like, yeah, yeah, that was me. I was there. So it's, like, weird things like that just make me double think and be like, yeah, you know, I mean, there wasn't really a motive. And that's the other piece. What was the motive? So one thing that we didn't really touch on, but... He was allegedly taking these, like, oh, yeah. diet pills that, I mean, and, and all in all, it was speed. Yeah. So. Like, in the 70s, diet pills were, like. Literally just speed. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So he was taking speed, and so one of the theories is that he basically had a psychotic break from this. Like, literally one of the side effects is, like, having a psychotic break. Yeah, and I mean, murdering and butchering your family, I guess, would constitute as a psychotic break. Yeah, I think so. Um... <laughs> But I don't know. That just doesn't seem, like, feasible to me. I know. Because, I, I I don't know, and maybe I'm, like, reading too much into it, but I feel like if you had such a psychotic break where you murdered your family, you wouldn't just hop back into reality and never... Yeah, I think you would go, like, crazy. Crazy, crazy. Like, you'd be like, what the hell did I just do? Like... Yeah. So that theory just seems a little outlandish to me, that you would go psychotic and then come right back to reality. I mean, here are the two options. He's either a psychotic, like, like, he's either a psychopath that doesn't have a conscience that can just dive right back into reality, or he didn't do it. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think either one of us really has a firm point of view on if he's innocent or guilty. I know. I really don't know. I also don't understand, like... I mean, I'm not going to say, sure, I can understand killing your wife, because I, I don't understand that either, but, like... <laughs> Good to know. But, to you know. know, husbands kill their wives, you know, but what what husbands usually don't do is butcher their young girls. Yeah, stab who them. he just bought a pony for for Christmas. Yeah, I mean, and the murder was so brutal to those girls. Like, one of them was stabbed 33 times. Like, this is a two-year-old. Yeah, see, like, that whole thing doesn't make sense to me, but at the same time... When you think about it, who else would have enough rage besides someone that knew them? Like, that's well, like a it crime could be of someone passion. crazy and high on drugs. That's true. Like, I feel like a lot of people in the 1970s were also, like, going through a whole, like, praise Satan situation. Oh, definitely. That was definitely going on. You had the Manson murders going yeah. on. I mean, then those are all things to consider, but... I guess we'll leave it up to you guys to decide. Yeah, I would say listen to Morally Indefensible. It's a podcast based on a writer who decides to write about Jeff McDonald's, like, honestly, first off, his innocence, and then he kind of changes his mind and thinks he's guilty. So it's interesting because you get to hear Jeff, like, talk to him while he's in jail, like, tell him his opinions, and then this guy kind of turns on him, and it's really interesting. But I would listen to that. There's also an FX show called A Wilderness of Air, 
But Krista and I both started watching it and, like, totally lost interest. So Yeah, I don't know if the listening to the podcast, I kind of felt like, like, oh, I already know this. Yeah. So, um, it's the, by the same people, both the podcast and the show are by the same guy who did the jinx, so. Oh, yeah, I forgot about it's that. It's, like, it's honestly really great. Highly recommend. Like I said, they go into a little more detail, so maybe check it out and see if you can figure out if he's innocent or guilty. Yeah, I would honestly love to know what people think because my mind is not made up at all. Yeah, and I feel like we usually have a good idea. Or I feel like usually one of us feels strongly and the yes. other feels strongly. But this one, we're kind of like on the fence about it. Yeah, so let us know your thoughts. Thanks for listening. Be back in probably another like 5,000 years. <laughs> Just kidding. We're going to figure something out. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Bye.